And those videos are fire, are they not? They're so good. So good. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 4. We're going to be in John chapter 4 this evening. How'd you guys day go? You guys have a good day? Dude, got to hang out with some homies playing basketball in the pool, in which I guess my record is now 1-0. So uh, I'm undefeated so far this week. Come at your boy. So uh, where's Dylan? Uh, I think he only scored two baskets on me. I think I scored five. You're welcome. Um, Maybe I did have a future in basketball. False. I gave it up a long time ago. But we're going to be in John chapter 4, 5, and 6. There's a lot of ground to cover this evening, especially when we're looking at who Jesus is, who he proclaimed himself to be the moment he stepped foot on earth as his stage. And I know there's a lot of ground to cover tonight, but I would ask that you would track with me because this is the most important person that has ever walked in sandals on this planet, the most important thing, the reason why we are all here this week is because of Jesus. And so I would ask that you are with me from cover to cover of tonight. Because we've looked at night one on the truth of who God is. That he is creator, sustainer, almighty, holy, but he's also a personal, relational, intimate God, not just creating and walking away, but dwells with creation. And then we looked at yesterday as well, the, the truth of God's word, that, that this week we're not looking at popular opinion or what Matt thinks is true or what your counselors or youth pastors simply believe is true. We're looking at the very truth of God from cover to cover, that the Bible that is in your laps has been tested, tried, and been found infallible and inerrant, meaning without error, that it is authoritative, being the very words of God. And then tonight we get to look at the very words of God embodied in who Jesus is. So are you all with me tonight? Let's do this. So I'm going to do a quick overview of John chapter 2 and John chapter 3 to get us up to speed to where Jesus is. So in John chapter 2, we see the first miracle that Jesus does. Jesus and a couple of his disciples go to a wedding feast. And they're at this wedding, and weddings back in the day would go on like a few days. It was awesome. I mean, mine and my wife's wedding was only one day. Like these weddings would be like six, seven days of just nonstop, party hard fun. It was awesome. And then in this wedding, what would happen is the, the host would serve their best wine first, and they're not as good wine last. And it was a sign of, of privilege, of popularity within the host to be able to serve wine. But in the process of this party, they're a couple days in, and wine runs out. And all, all, everyone's kind of looking at the host going, man, what's their problem? And it be kind of becomes this shameful thing. And then Jesus, in this moment, tells a couple servants to go fetch a bunch of jugs of water and begin serving them out to people. But as they began to serve out this water, they would pour it out and find that it was wine. And guests begin to ask, why did you save the best wine for last? This is unreal. Jesus saving a whole family from public humiliation by running out of wine. Jesus not desiring that those to be shamed given the context. And then we see as Jesus then leaves there and he goes into the temple where people go to worship the God of the universe. But as Jesus steps foot on the temple steps, he begins to see something that's a little out of character for that location. He begins to see booths and tables with tax collectors and money changers See, people would come from all over the land of Israel and they'd have different currencies and they would have to exchange their money for the temple money of the day and they'd be double charged for what they were given. And then they would also have to go through and they'd have to buy sacrificial animals in order to sacrifice them for their, for their covering of their sins, but they'd be charged double or they would even bring their own lamb that was pure and spotless and they would look at this lamb that this family brought and said, nope, doesn't work, you're gonna have to buy ours. Kind of picture it going into Disneyland where it's like you try to go get like a corn dog and it's like $900, like it's unreal. That's what was happening. And yes, did I relate Disneyland to temple destruction? Yes, but in the process, 
we see this happening and Jesus says, not in my father's house. He begins flipping tables that this has become a den of robbers, not a place of commerce, but a place to worship his heavenly father. And then what's so interesting is in verses 23 and 25, we read this as Jesus begins his public ministry. It says this in chapter two, verse 23 and 25 says, now when he was in Jerusalem at Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing signs that he was doing. So people seeing Jesus turn water into wine and, and all these miracles. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he knew that he knew what was in man. It's fascinating. What does it mean that Jesus, in the process of people, many believed in his name, observing signs, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them? Because I think many believed, man, this guy's a good teacher. This guy's a good miracle worker. This Jesus is a good guy. There's something different about Jesus. But they weren't willing to go and call him for who he is as Lord. And I know that many of us, as we came to camp this week, might have different preconceived beliefs of who Jesus is. Whether that be a good teacher or a good guy or a guy that we find in the, the pages of the Bible or the guy that my parents believe in or the guy that I hear about at youth group. And I would ask this. Tonight, what if what we share about Jesus tonight is indeed true? that he wasn't just a good guy, that he wasn't just a miracle worker, but that he was the Lord God Almighty. And if that is true, that changes everything. For he himself said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus himself left no room for contradiction in who he was. He himself said, I I'm not just a good teacher. I'm not just a good guy. I am the way to eternal life and life abundant. And then we fast forward to chapter three where Jesus has this interaction with a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, meaning that he was a teacher of the law, similar to a Levite, memorizing the entire text of the Old Testament. He was a man of prominence. He was a man of privilege. He was a man of authority. And Nicodemus shows up to Jesus, walks up to him in the middle of the night, which is fascinating. In your Bible, so often, night is used as a description or a symbol it doesn't just represent the time of day. It also represents, in this moment, the way Nicodemus was feeling in his heart. That Nicodemus was even filled with darkness in and of himself because he wasn't willing to admit who Jesus was. And even when Nicodemus reaches Jesus in the middle of the night, he calls him rabbi, which means teacher. Again, Nicodemus not willing to give Jesus the full authority that he is due, but calls him teacher. And then Jesus begins to explain that in order to know me, in order to follow after me, in order to have access to God the Father, you must be born again. That we must die to ourselves and be raised to newness of life in Christ. That Jesus has to completely transform us from the inside out. And this is massively troubling to Nicodemus. Because if you know anything about your Old Testament or you know anything about the Pharisees, the Israelites were God's chosen people. By birth, they were God's chosen people. But what is Jesus saying? Your human genealogy, your human upbringing in me doesn't matter. You don't get to ride into heaven because your parents know who Jesus is. I don't get to follow the coattails after those who believe before me. I must come to the conclusion myself on who Jesus is. Then I love Jesus in, in 3.12 through 14. Says this to Nicodemus, if I, have, if I told you earthly things, you would not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. 
The son of man is Jesus's most popular phrase that he uses to talk about himself. He uses it over 60 times in the New Testament. Now, it isn't like a, a him referring to himself in third person. He's not like pulling like a Kanye in this moment. This is him referring to himself, the son of man. And if you go to the origination, if that's even a word, I think I just made it up, the origin of son of man, it's found in the book of Daniel chapter seven. Daniel was a guy who followed faithfully after God, who was obedient to God, and Daniel has a vision. And Daniel sees a, a messianic figure or a figure coming out of heaven, and he says, this is the son of man whose rule will never end. Jesus, in this moment, calling himself the son of man, saying, I am God, I am the savior of the world. And then he says this in verse 14, as Moses is lifted up, as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man must be lifted up. Jesus in this moment with Nicodemus at night proclaiming his death on the cross. This moment that Jesus is referring to is while the Israelites were wandering through the desert in the Old Testament, snakes began, poisonous snakes began to bite the, the people of Israel. I don't know about you, I hate snakes with a passion. It's like my worst nightmare. My wife's like, I love snakes. I'm like, well, what's wrong with you? But in this process, these snakes started biting the Israelites, and so God told Moses, raise a snake up on a staff, and everyone who looks at it will be cured in an instant. Jesus proclaiming that just like a snake was lifted in the desert, I too, the son of man, am gonna be pierced on a cross, raised up, and everyone who believes in who I am will be saved. And then in this conversation with Nicodemus, he says the verse that for many was probably the first that we grew up memorizing in John 3.16. So I want to read it, and then I'm going to pray. John 3.16. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for who you are. God, I just pray this evening as we have an opportunity, Jesus, to examine who you are. As we take a fine-tooth comb through your ministry, God, as we take a fine-tooth comb for who you proclaimed yourself to be, God, I pray that for maybe the next couple moments, God, we could just clear our minds and clear our heads and truly focus on you. There's so many things that are flesh and the devil would love to distract us, especially when we're talking about you. God, I pray that we would see you for who you are this evening. God, the most important question that you asked is who do you say that I am? God, and I pray that at the end of this message, when we have that opportunity to ask that question again, may we see you clearly then than we do now. God, Holy Spirit, we love you. We thank you, God. I pray as I teach, God, may I treat your word with the honor and respect and reverence that it deserves. And all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, let's dive in to John chapter four. We're gonna start in verse seven. So Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he goes to a town uh, and a people known as the Samaritans and that's a big deal and I'll get to why here in a second. Verse seven of chapter four says this. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, and who is it who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are no greater than our father Jacob. Are, are you 
who have given us the well, drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will never thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So Jesus, in the heat of the day, sends his disciples to go get some food, and he has this one-on-one interaction with a woman at the well who is a Samaritan woman, Jesus being a Jew. Why does that matter? They hate each other. Boom. Golden star. They hated each other. Why? Because the Jews believed that the place where you worship God is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, like that is where you go and worship God, that is where the place where God dwells, you worship him, you make the trek, doesn't matter where you're from, you are taking the hike to go worship God at the temple. Samaritans decided they were going to build their own temple in their own city so they don't have to pay the insane gas fees in order to get there, just kidding, they didn't have gas. But in this process, they just built their own temple. And because of that, Jews and Samaritans hated each other, never to interact. Jesus, being a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish teacher, a Jewish man with authority, sees this woman at the well and interacts with her, a Samaritan woman. Not only that, this woman in which we're going to find out is a woman of very broken reputation. She's getting water in the heat of the day. The women would either all go early in the morning while it was still cool, or they would go late at night when it cooled down, and yet we see Jesus and her at the well in the middle of the day. See, Jesus in this moment is proclaiming that my gospel, my truth, who I am, is for everyone. It's no longer going to be just projected onto a group of the Israelites. It's now going to be the gospel that saves the world. The truth of Jesus isn't for those who have it all. The gospel of Jesus isn't for those who were raised in a Christian home. The gospel isn't for those who seem like they have everything together. The gospel is for those who in your mind you think are too far gone to be saved. The gospel, Jesus, the compassion of Jesus meeting everyone where they're at. And Jesus makes two claims to this woman about himself. In verse 10, he proclaims in verse 10, 10, Jesus answered to her, if you knew the gift of God and who was it that said to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. In this process, Jesus is like, I am the gift. I am the one. I am the one you have been waiting for. If you knew who I am, you would have been in awe of my question. But not only that, he also proclaims that he is living water. Now, why is living water a big deal? Because when he says this, she thinks, well, I don't know how you're going to get water because you don't have a bucket. How are you going to dive in, get water from the bottom of this thing? Like, what are you talking about? Well, you see, again, this is going back to last night's message, the truth of Scripture. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus, God, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, proclaims himself and gives himself a title as the spring and fountain of living water. That I'm not here to simply satisfy physical needs for physical needs will rear their head of need every single day. I am going to satisfy the deepest need that you have. Jesus is proclaiming himself not only the fullness of life and meaning and hope that can be found, but he is going to fulfill that deep desire in your heart, your wants, your cares, your pursuit of what is the meaning of life. Who am I? You find that answer in Jesus. 
Who is God? You find that answer in Jesus. And what is this life about? You find that answer in Jesus. And so many of us chase after lesser things to fill that hole, and we find time and time and time and time again, they never satisfy, and we chase after the next best thing. Again, me, I grew up playing basketball. I love basketball. Again, I'm 1-0 in the pool this week. You're welcome. Uh, where's my winning team at? Let's go. Where are my counselors? Let's go. MVP. Also, Ricardo, you're a baller. Anyways, that's truth tonight. But in this process, I remember like growing up, I, I would stand in line. This is like for all you video game nerds. I would stand in line outside of EB Games, which blew up in terms of stock market, but whatever. But in this process, I would stand outside and I would wait for the latest NBA 2K game to come out. And I would save my money. I'm like, I'm doing this. And I would buy it, like, let's go. And I would just nerd out on that thing for nine months and I thought it was awesome. But then what happens nine months later? A new one comes out. And then I would save my money, go back, do it again. I wait the nine months, then a new one comes out. I'm like, well, now all these are obsolete. I'm constantly chasing after that. Or I look at the whole pandemic that is buying cell phones. It's like, man, the Apple Store looks like a, like a relief center when the new iPhone comes out. It's like people are waiting days and days and days to get the new iPhone only for what? In nine months, the new one's gonna come out and it doesn't satisfy and you're wasting human resources to have this thing that is destined to break. And our life is spent chasing after the next high, the next popular trend, trying to keep up with the Joneses and I don't know about you, but it is exhausting. Are you tired? Are you exhausted? Chasing after the approval of people, trying to put on a mask, appearing that you have it all together, chasing after things that will never satisfy, only decay and leave you wanting more, and Jesus in this moment saying, I am it. I am the only remedy to this rat race, this chase that you find yourself in. And then in verses 15 through, four, for, through 24, we see this incredible interaction, this beautiful moment between Jesus and this woman. In verse 15 of chapter four, it says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or come all the way here to draw water. And he said to her, this is interesting, go and call your husband to come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have said correctly, I have had no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one who you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. Jesus, in truth, calls this woman out for how she is chasing after worldly gains. Now this woman, if you know anything about what it means to be a widow, there's a big point in scripture that says we need to take care of orphans and widows. Why is it a big deal to be a widow? A woman whose husband has died. Because women could not own land, they couldn't own property, they couldn't earn money, so they had to tie themselves to a gentleman who could do that for them. And this woman's husband had died and she is chasing after other men, so much so five other men. And the woman that she is with is not her husband, Jesus, calling out adultery in this moment. And I know so many of us can feel that, man, that's so harsh. But then even her realizing, how does he even know this? He just met me. And the woman said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and people say that in Jerusalem, in this place where men are ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, women, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but an hour is coming and now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus, upon basically putting her sin in this moment, calls it out, 
also says, but my grace in the presence of God is no longer going to be to you at arm's length based on where you worship and location that my God that I am for you in that moment meets her in a harsh truth with beautiful grace. He doesn't just walk away from her presence. He pursues her with the truth that his grace will be sufficient for her. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ, again, the one who's been prophesied, who will come and take away the sins of the world. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And then Jesus in verse 26, has the most epic mic drop. He says, Jesus said to her, I who you speak to am he. This is the first time Jesus up until this point has been like subtly like I'm the living water and then we're gonna get into a little bit I'm the bread of life and he's beginning to do these miracles. He's having these subtle hints, these breadcrumbs of I am God coming to save that which was lost But this time, to a broken woman at a well in the heat of the day proclaims to her first, I am he, this I am, calling back to you all the way when Moses, before he goes to free the people of Israel, looks at the burning bush, God presenting himself to him and goes, who do I say sent me? And what does God say? I am sends you. Jesus, in this moment, out loud, not to be confused, in the presence of this woman, chooses to reveal himself in full to her. Someone who's broken. Someone whose shame has caused so much distress that she's going out to get water in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, getting ridiculed constantly. He shows up to her and goes, I am here, the Messiah, to save you. Look at me. If you came up this week and you're resonating with this woman at the well going, Matt, you don't don't know what I've done. You don't know my lineage. You don't know my laundry list of screw-ups that I keep hidden in the closet. You're right, I don't. Jesus does. And he looks at you right now in this chapel and goes, that's why I came. You are not too broken for me. You are not too destitute. That whisper in your ear saying, ah, it's it's too much is a lie from Satan himself from the pit of hell, do you hear me? Jesus revealing himself powerfully to this woman. So what does this say about Jesus? He's proclaiming that he's the one that's been prophesied since the beginning. That he is the anointed one sent to restore all of creation and that he is the only thing that can sustain our souls. That through Jesus, we don't have to continue this rat race of trying to find identity or meaning or hope or purpose. That in Jesus, all of those questions are fulfilled. Incredible moment. Now we move on to John chapter five where Jesus continues in his miracle working ways to a guy chilling outside of a pool called Bethesda. Jesus, back in Jerusalem, walking around, sees a man laying down by the pool of Bethesda. And this man has been crippled for 38 years. Now, I love sleeping in and laying down, but I cannot imagine laying down unable to walk for 38 years. Imagine, he didn't get to the pool because he walked there. Every day, people are carrying him to where he wants to go. To get to a meal, people are carrying him to get to a meal. And not only that, those in this context who were sick or or lame, they They were viewed as, man, there's something wrong with them. There's something going on there. So they were kind of pushed outside of community lines. So even the people carrying him, there was a cost to that. This man had nothing. And that's where we find him and where Jesus finds him. And then in chapter five, verse five, follow along with me. It says this. 
a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to them, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. See, the reason why this man wanted to get into the pool of Bethesda is because there was this belief that, man, if you just stay by the pool, then these angels are going to come down, they're going to stir up this water, and then when the water is stirred up, you're going to get in and be healed. Man, if you try this, that will fulfill you. Man, if you just give in to this, man, that'll fulfill you. Does that sound familiar? And Jesus, looking at this man going, do you wish to get well? And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Verse 9, immediately. I love the text, immediately. It's not like, ah, waited a couple seconds. Immediately, Jesus, immediately, not Jesus, I just love that word. Jesus, immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk again. This is nuts, The guy's been sick, lame, hasn't taken a step in 38 years. Picks up his pallet and walks. Jesus proclaiming that I have power over even the darkest of illness. And it's so interesting because I don't know about you, like if I'm witnessing this, I'm going, Oh my gosh, film that, get that on YouTube. I'm gonna get a million views. Like, let's go. This is awesome. This is crazy. Like, I'd be so stoked. But there's a crew of people there who witness this and get boiling hot mad. And these people are the Pharisees. In verse 17, well, before we get to verse 17, there's this moment of why they're mad, and the reason why they're mad is because Jesus has healed on the Sabbath. Now, on the Sabbath, God commanded to keep it holy that there wasn't to be any work done on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees had taken this and had become so legalistic about it. Like, you couldn't even go and, like, pick food out of the ground to feed yourself if you were hungry, We see that on the Sabbath, Jesus and the disciples are going through a grain field, picking up grains and eating them, and Pharisees are like, no. It's like, dude, if I'm hungry, it's on, right? But these Pharisees have made a mountain out of a molehill, and they've begun this legalistic practice to be able to push people down and elevate themselves. And it's so interesting. I remember being in Israel. This is a true story. Me and my friends were in a hotel, and we get into the elevator, we're on like the ninth floor, and it's Sabbath, they call it Shabbat, and they have the elevators turn into what they call Shabbat elevators, which means you're not allowed to push a button on the elevator, that's considered work. Like, I need a Gatorade. You know, like, what's going on? But literally, you walk in and you have to stop at every single floor before you get to your own. I was like, praise God I'm not on like the 14th floor, I could read a whole novel before I get there. It's like Elf when he just goes down all the things, the Empire State Building. But it's this process of like how foolish is that? But I also want to make a note here because following Jesus is not regulated to a list of rules and regulations. It's not a legalistic faith. If you've grown up or you came to camp thinking, man, Christianity is just a bunch of rules That's an untruth and unreality that someone has told you. That it's not about rules, it's about relationship. That the God of the universe wants you to know him. That he would stop at nothing for you to know who he is, to experience freedom in who he is. And I know so often, if we're not careful, for those of us who are in Christ, We can suffer in this legalism by placing a legalistic weight on other people that we ourselves couldn't carry. It's the whole point of Jesus. The whole Old Testament proves that by no good deed could I save myself. I need a savior. It's not about rules. That's not what 
the faith is about. That's not what being a Christian is about. There's not as much as I laughed about the whole gold star thing. There's not a gold star chart on the heavenly refrigerator of Jesus who's like, dope, you read your Bible today, gold star. Like, it's did you spend time with me? I just want to spend time with you. It's not a list of rules and regulations. It's a relationship with Jesus. And then in verse 17 of this moment, Jesus makes a profound statement about himself. In verse 17, read it with me. But he answered them saying, my father is working until now and I myself am working. Jesus saying, my father's at work, therefore I'm at work. Also, that means me and God are one. That you cannot separate Jesus and God the father that they are one in the same And this claim riles up the religious leaders to where they want to kill Jesus because he is reigning on their parade of, it's not about having access to God through Pharisees or a legalistic system that through me you can have access to the God of the universe. Verse 19 through 24, follow along as Jesus continues this, I am your access to God. Verse 19, therefore Jesus answered And was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to him, the son of man can do nothing of himself unless unless something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son does also in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things and he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son of man gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son, so that all will honor the son even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Jesus making this proclamation about him that me and the Father are one, that everything my Father is about, I am about, that everything my Father, God of the universe, has said in the Old Testament concerning me, I am the full embodiment of every word spoken that I'm not just a good teacher, that I'm not just a good guy, that you don't have access to eternal life and abundant life apart from Jesus. That nothing else will be able to fill that void, that Jesus alone has the power to breathe life. Jesus is the only one who can bestow eternal life and life abundant on earth. If you know Jesus, then you know the Father. He is the full embodiment of God's love. You can't know God if you don't know who Jesus is. Truth and Jesus are synonymous. They're the same. Then on top of all this, we see that Jesus is indeed the full embodiment and fulfillment of scripture. See this in verse 30 through 37 where it says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, then my testimony is not true. What Jesus is saying, if it's just me and I've just come to the scene and I'm testifying these truths, but they've never been talked about before by God, then I'm just another person spouting cool information. But the reason why my testimony is true about who I am is because God has already said it before I got here. I have the receipts of what God has said. And then in verse 35, I mean 33, it says, you have sent John the Baptist, and he has testified to the truth, but the testimony which I received is not from man, but I say these things so that you will be saved. He was a lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Verse 36, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John the Baptist. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. John the Baptist, again, his whole point in this life was to proclaim that Jesus was coming. 
And Jesus saying that my words are more important than that of the coming Messiah. Why? Because I am here. And I get to proclaim the life that is to come in me. Guys, Jesus is the full fulfillment of scripture from cover to cover. He's the full answer, the yes and amen to every promise of God. That he is the only thing that can satisfy and fulfill. And then after Jesus leaves, as he kind of leaves the Pharisees reeling as they're trying to figure out who he is in their mad state of trying to kill him, Jesus goes and puts on the greatest buffet on the lawn you've ever seen in your life. Now, don't get me wrong. The chili dog's awesome. My family's going to be paying for it later in our room. Don't get me wrong. But Jesus goes from here, and this is one of my favorite miracles of the Bible because simply, just gonna be honest, I love to eat. So this fills my soul every time. Jesus goes and he's on a hilltop and he's teaching. And while he's teaching, he's been teaching for several hours and the disciples are like, yo, Jesus, tummies are grumbling like everywhere. And we don't have enough food to feed them. Let's send them back into town, which is a couple miles. Have them eat and then Maybe come back, but that'll be it for the day. And Jesus looks at his disciples and go, well, how about this? How about you feed them? And John's like, uh, what? Like, we have no food. And so what the disciples do, they end up going, well, someone has to have food here. They go through the crowd, and they find a hero of a child who has a lunchbox, and in his lunchbox have five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus is like, punk rock, let's do this takes this little kid's lunchbox and begins to break the bread and give thanks to God and he feeds 5,000 people with just bread and fish and they have baskets on baskets of leftovers. Now we read that it's 5,000 people, that's only counting the men in the crowd. Now, I'm sorry ladies, it's just how they did it then. I would count you, I promise. Or my wife would kill me. Uh, but. That's only, think about the bigger number there then of women and children who are present. It's like 5,000 to the millionth power. Like there's so many people who Jesus filled in this moment. And what does that mean that Jesus is sustaining with bread and fish as he proclaims himself? Skip to chapter six, verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for for food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on on him the Father God has set his seal. Nice. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that me may work the works of God? And Jesus answered them and said, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So they asked him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? This is like stunning to me. It's like the guy has just fed like 7,000 people. And he's like, what sign do I need to see? It's like, really? (laughs) Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So these people quote this verse, even though they've seen Jesus feed 5,000, they quote this verse that God gave the people of Israel manna. Now if you know your Bible, in, in the freeing of Israel out of captivity of Egypt by Moses, God using Moses, the people begin to get hungry and complain. God, you freed us from from slavery, but now you've left us hungry. I'd rather go back to Egypt and be slaves and, and eat there. God hears their cries and provides manna from heaven that when they would wake up in the morning, there would be these little morsels of bread all along the ground. And they were commanded by God to go each morning and gather up enough manna, these little bread morsels, to satisfy for that day. But they weren't to gather more than just a day's worth. And if As we see, some of them did, they're like, what I would probably do, like stuff all the stuff in my shirt. Like they begin to take extra, but then they get to the next day and everything has maggots and worms in it. God trying to 
bring out, hey, just trust me for just enough. But just as the Israelites would eat this manna on one day and be hungry the next, what Jesus is saying is that I am not one that simply fills you to be hungry the next day. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it was my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread. And Jesus, in verse 35, says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus, in this moment, is like, just like your forefathers ate manna on the ground and be hungry the next day. I'm not talking about physical sustenance. I'm talking about I have come that you may have life again to living water, now the bread of life that I have come that you might be fully satisfied in me. I remember me and my wife, we used to live in, in Santa Rosa, California. It's in the Bay Area. It's like the most expensive place to live. It's ridiculous. Don't live there. But I remember it'd be like 10 o'clock at night and my wife, you'd just hear our stomachs grumbling even though we had like a three-course dinner. Trust me, my wife is the best cook on planet Earth. Prove me wrong. But we would have this epic meal and then we'd get to like 10 o'clock at night, we'd get hungry again and then my wife would look at me and go, you know what I want. I was like, I know exactly what you want. You want jalapeno poppers from Jack in the Box down the street. And I would get in my car at 10 o'clock at night. They knew me by name. They had, this is like the biggest shameful moment when Jack in the Box knows you by name repent like just figure it something out and they would automatically have like jalapeno poppers and we eat them but man we'd eat them be satisfied for like an hour and then our stomachs would be punching us in the face like the next hour like it's not this physical satisfaction that Jesus is talking about like eating food it's a bigger deeper promise a satisfaction of your very soul of your very being of your very existence of your very purpose of your very hope Jesus is here and proclaims himself to be the sustainer of life, the giver of life, your answer to what the good life is, what it means to have life and life abundant. But what's so fascinating is as much as it can even seem polarizing as Jesus is saying that I am the one, but more importantly, it's God giving us an incredible gift in who Jesus is It's not polarizing, it's inviting into life. Then in verse 40 through 46, Jesus says this, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And again, this statement causes grumbling in verse 41 therefore the jews will grumbling about him because he said i am the bread of life that has come down from heaven and they were saying is not this jesus the son of joseph who father and mother we know how does he say now i have come down out of heaven and jesus answered them do not grumble amongst yourselves no one can come to me unless the father who sent him draws him And I'll raise him up on that day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Jesus makes a profound statement here, saying that I, me, Jesus, am the only access to the Father. That I am the only one who has had access to the Father, but those who believe in me have that same access. Now what's so fascinating is we see that this causes another dissension, and we see in verse 60 of chapter six, look at it with me. After Jesus has made these statements, it's therefore, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then, if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, it is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you 
who do not believe. I want to finish our time together by asking one of the most important questions that Jesus ever asked on his time on earth. And that was, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? Because Jesus is claiming that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is claiming that he alone has access to the Father and he alone gives access to the Father. He is claiming that he is life and life abundant, that he is the only thing that satisfies. He is claiming that he is eternal hope, eternal truth, eternal identity, that you cannot have that apart from Jesus. He is claiming to be the great I am. He is claiming to be God. These are his words, not mine. These are God's words, not mine. Who do you say Jesus is? That is the most important question you will ever ask and every human has to have an answer for it. So as we go into our time for the rest of this evening, who do you say Jesus is? Because again, in my own story, I, I treated Jesus like a good guy. I treated him like a vending machine. I would only go to him if I had a desperate need and I forget him tomorrow. Treated Jesus that he was a, a good Lord for my parents, but maybe not for me, and I chased after every single thing that the world have to offer, and I was left empty. Maybe some of you, like the parable of the younger son who went and squandered all he had on earthly living realized, what am I doing? None of this satisfies. Jesus makes promises, proclaiming, I am the only one who satisfies. I'm the only one who gives life. And I am giving you access to who I am. That is who Jesus is. But who do you say that he is? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you, Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for, God, Jesus, you being the full embodiment of the love of God, coming to put on display God's truth. Holy Spirit, convict us. God, you brought us here on purpose and for a purpose to wrestle with who you are. God, I pray as we have a time to discuss this, God, I pray for honesty. It's a theme about truth. God, may you shine light in areas of our lives where we've simply believed you to be a good guy or a controversial figure. God, illuminate in our hearts who you are. God, that to a woman at the well, you proclaimed access to who life is. We love you so much. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen.